If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I enjoyed writing about Nero more than anyone else I've written about. He is truly monstrous, but he's also kind of brilliant as well. That was Tom Holland talking about Roman emperors. Who decided that women should be silent? Who came up with that idea that speech is a male privilege and and that women should, as Sophocles said in his play Ajax, silence is a woman's garment? Who came up with that idea? And that was Amanda Foreman discussing her new series on the history of women. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of September 2015. 
I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Tom Holland, an ancient historian and author who is also a presenter on BBC Radio 4's Making History. Tom's latest book is Dynasty, which tells the story of the first five emperors of Rome. It's a follow-up to his award-winning 2003 book, Rubicon, which charted the end of the Roman Republic. I visited Tom in his London home recently to discover more about a remarkable group of Roman rulers that began with Augustus and ended with Nero. You've written about this period clearly before with Rubicon, a very successful book a number of years ago. Why have you now decided to come back to it? Actually, um, the moment I finished Rubicon, which ends essentially with the death of Julius Caesar, but in the last chapter I touch on um, Mark Antony and Cleopatra and the eventual triumph of Augustus, I knew that I wanted to go on because tantalisingly over the horizon lie so many other great names. So not only Augustus, but Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Agrippina, and of course Nero. Um, And so essentially the moment that I finished Rubicon, I've been mapping out how I would write the story of the first dynasty of the Caesars. Like you say, some of these characters are at least quite well known, like Caligula, Nero, Augustus. People have certainly heard of them and heard their reputation. Are there any particular misconceptions about these people that you want to dispel with this book? I think that there's an inherent danger in approaching this period with the idea that you want to correct misconceptions. Because if you are writing about, say, Caligula or Nero, the risk is that you then approach it with the idea that I'm actually going to tell the truth about them. I'm going to make out that they weren't quite as mad or appalling or monstrous as people say. Now, there may be an element of truth to that, but actually what really interests me about this and what I think is fascinating and why it is worthwhile writing this is that actually the stories that are told about Caligula, about Nero, are fascinating not just for what they may or may not tell us about the emperors themselves, but also for what they tell us about the Roman people and how they understood power and their relationship to power. And that's why ultimately I think that it's very difficult to write a single biography of an emperor and not place him in the, co- the broader context of the dynasty as a whole. Because when you do that, then you can start to make sense of the stories that are told about them. And perhaps, just perhaps, come to an understanding of what the truth might actually have been. But if you approach Caligula and say, I'm going to say, you know, he wasn't mad. The reason that he did these things was for this reason or for that reason. The risk is that you you occlude what was authentically monstrous and appalling about him. So you think that there is some truth, some of these extravagant rumours about, say, Caligula and Nero? Yes, I do. I I think that um, in the case of Caligula, uh, there was a calculated decision on his part that was not at all insane, was very, in a sense, very, very shrewd, very intelligent. I think Caligula was was a terrifyingly intelligent man. His aim was to push to the absolute outer limits of what a person in his position could do. Because the key thing to remember is that the emperors were not kings and there was no prescription for how an emperor should behave. Augustus had ruled as long and as absolutely as he did by pretending that he wasn't actually an absolute ruler. Um, Tiberius, his successor, 
was at heart a Republican nobleman. He felt uncomfortable with the autocracy that he had inherited. Caligula had no such hang-ups. Caligula came to power and he decided he was going to be as powerful as he possibly could and he wanted to push at the limits. But specifically, he wanted to rest his authority not on the Senate, the traditional arbiters of Roman authority in the vanished age of the Republic. He wanted to establish a relationship that was ultimately dependent upon his own charisma, his own popularity, his own personality, and he wanted to draw strength from the support of the people. So his very brief reign was a calculated attempt to mock, destroy, incinerate the authority of the Senate. And so, for instance, the most famous story that is told about him that he wanted to make his horse a consul. There's an element there of a joke. What Caligula is saying there is that he has the power to make anyone he wants a consul. And for senators to become a consul meant that you'd made it. It was the absolute summit of a senator's career. So for Caligula to turn around and say, I could make anyone I like, even my horse, a consul, is essentially to mock their ambitions, to put them in their place. Now, of course, as it turns out, there are, in fact, limits on the power of an emperor. And those limits are set by the willingness of those who are offended by him to kill him. And what Caligula's career demonstrates is that the power of the early emperors was an autocracy that was essentially moderated by fear of assassination. So was assassination, was the checks and balances more than, say, the Senate or, the, or say, the will of the people? Essentially, it's assassination. And if you have the support of the Senate, if you have the support of the people, then you are you are likelier to survive, you are likely to endure. But ultimately, there's nothing that either the Senate or the people can do that will inhibit or cramp the power of an emperor. It's angering the people, angering the soldiers in particular, angering the Senate. That then puts you in danger of assassination. Or, of course, in the case of Nero, um, so offending uh, members of the senatorial elite that those who have armies on distant frontiers decide that they are going to shake off their loyalty. How does this dynasty first get to be in a position of being emperors? Because obviously Rome famously didn't have an emperor. And and then, you, you know, Augustus wouldn't claim to be one, Tiberius didn't want to be one. It seems surprising that they managed to create this dynasty. Well, our word emperor derives from the Latin word imperator. But imperator in the Republican period means essentially a, a general who's been victorious. If you win a battle, you get hailed as an imperator on the field of battle. Augustus is not initially called Augustus. Initially, he is called Octavian. He then, in his late teens, after the Ides of March, the assassination of Caesar, discovers that he is the heir of Caesar. He's been adopted by Julius Caesar. So he then takes on the name of Julius Caesar. He, his enemies call him Octavianus, which means that you were Octavian, but you've now been adopted by someone else. The former Octavian never called himself that. He always called himself Caesar because that was the magic of his name. And he was very proficient at essentially using names to demonstrate his power and also to cover up areas of his career where he was not perhaps as strong as he might have been. And one of those fields was in um, as a soldier, as a general. He was not a very good general. So to conceal this fact, he decided to call himself Imperator. So it becomes one of his names. And it's not a title, it's a proper name. So a correct translation of the name by which the person who ends up Augustus went by would be something like Gaius Julius Caesar, victorious general, son of a god, 
close to heaven. So, Imperator, Divi Filius, son of a god, Augustus, close to heaven. These are names that we have kind of been deadened to, but for someone to end up called close to heaven or victorious general gives you a sense of how superhuman the one-time Octavian, the future Augustus, manages to make himself. And it's by doing that that essentially he is able to smug himself into the fabric of the Roman state. He never lays claim to the title of king. He never lays claim to the title of dictator, which Julius Caesar had tried to make, but which had, had, had clearly ended up killing him. All that Augustus claimed to be was Princeps, the first citizen. That's all, all he ever was. But the majesty, the awe, the splendor, the prestige that clung to his name was sufficient to endow that title of Princeps with an extraordinary aura, so potent that no one ever thought to overthrow him. And it meant that when he died, he was very rapidly elevated to the heavens. And from that point on, those who had the Augustus's blood in their veins had a kind of sacral quality. And those who could lay claim to be his heirs were the people whom the Roman people accepted should properly be his heirs and rule them as, as emperor. So there is an element of the hereditary monarchy about it, but at the same time, the key to understanding the way the system worked was that no one could admit that this is what was going on. And so clearly, certainly for a while, they were very successful at this dynasty at remaining in power. How successful were they at running Rome and the empire? All the members of this dynasty, and when I say dynasty, we should remember that Claudius is not actually related to Augustus uh, by blood. He essentially comes to power by means of a coup, but the other four, so um, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, the, the, the first five emperors, are astonishingly able in their very different ways. And although they had terrible reputations, um, they clearly got up to monstrous things, Nevertheless, in the primary task of an emperor, which was essentially to keep peace, that was the equation, that was the deal by which Augustus came to power, they were incredibly successful. Uh, and from the time of um, the defeat of Antony and Cleopatra in Egypt, which ended with their suicide, up to the series of revolts that culminated in Nero committing suicide, the Roman world was generally at peace. And perhaps the paradigmatic figure who is seen as a monster in Rome and an enlightened prince of peace in the provinces is Tiberius, the second emperor. He is notorious to this day for the depravities that he supposedly got up to on the Isle of Capri, where he retired as an old man. He's said to have had young boys who would swim beside him um, in his swimming pool and lick his genitals. He did. He said by Suetonius, the uh, Roman scholar and gossip monger, to have done something so disgusting that I can't possibly uh, relate, <laughs> describe them on a family podcast. <laughs> but look them up in Suetonius, and I guarantee that you will. You, yeah, you'll be shocked. But at the same time, when he dies in Alexandria, a, a Jew, Philo, says of him that he was the most enlightened, the most intelligent prince of peace that there had been and mourned him and respected him and hailed him as uh, the figure who had kept the world from war for all these periods. And that's absolutely true. Tiberius did do that. And Augustus had done that before him. And when you think how 
ravaged by violence, the Roman world had been the decades before the coming to power of Augustus. And you think of how internecine war had been across Europe and across the Mediterranean in the years before the Augustan supremacy reaching centuries back. And then you think about the state of the world today, Mediterranean, and you think about from Britain to Syria, North Africa, always at peace. And so, but how much is that down to their own, say, the emperor's policies? Or is it more due to kind of the, the imperial structure or the, the strength of the armies? I mean, how much, how personally responsible are the emperors for this? Uh, Augustus certainly plays a key role in it. Uh, and the, the key feat, and it's one of the most astonishing um, uh, governmental feats in ancient history, maybe all history, is that after he's defeated Antony and Cleopatra and he rules supreme, he has an enormous number of legions at his beck and call. He's had all the ones that he's recruited to fight Antony and Cleopatra. He then inherits Antony's legions. And what he does is to successfully settle the veterans on farms, on land, without causing too much dislocation and ensuring that they do not come milling back to Rome, carrying their old swords with them, that they settle down to become farmers, that they become civilians. And he also stations other sections of this inheritance of legions out on the frontier, where they can serve as garrisons and as frontier guards, but they're a long, long way from Rome. And the charisma and the potency of Augustus, combined with the fact that he's able to pay them, ensures that he wins their loyalty. And the loyalty of the soldiers continues to be paid to heirs of Augustus. Among them, very prominently Tiberius, who succeeds as Augustus' heir by virtue of being adopted by him. But in his own right was an extraordinarily able general who twice saved Rome from almost certain collapse, feats that, that, that often tend to be forgotten. And Augustus likewise is a, is, a, is a figure whose ability as a military man, as a man of affairs, is considerable. Caligula less so, but even he, there were no major disturbances under his rule. Claudius conquered Britain, considerable feat. And even Nero, under whose rule um, the system does break down, in the eastern half of the empire, the Greek-speaking half of the empire, he remains incredibly popular. He, he goes to Greece in the last years of his life and he, he essentially flatters them by taking their festivals and their sports competitions and their dramas seriously. And even after his death, people appear in the east claiming to be Nero. And the presumption is obviously there that to say you are Nero is to be quite something. You've talked earlier about Claudius and the conquest of Britain. Clearly that's of interest to us sitting in, in England today. How, how involved was Claudius himself in that the invasion? Claudius um, had, as anyone who's, who's read or watched um, Graves' I, Claudius, will know, uh, was not uh, expected to play a role in public life because he may, he may have had something akin to cerebral palsy, maybe even cerebral palsy. He twitched, he stammered, he shook. And this was regarded by the divine family um, of Augustus as a, a deep cause of embarrassment. So he never played a public role, but he was a very intelligent man. And maybe because he wasn't being sent out on provincial posts or to the limits of the Roman world, he was fascinated by the geography and the history of the lands that Rome had conquered. So when he became emperor and he was keen to stamp his mark on Rome and demonstrate that he was a a worthy son of, of Roman martial tradition. 
he was probably better qualified than anyone to work out where the low-hanging fruit lay because of his, his, his interest in, uh, in the broader world. Um, and so Britain it was. And it's true that he personally didn't lead the invasion, but he did go to Britain. Um, he didn't stay very long, but he did travel to Britain. And that for an emperor who had essentially come to power in a coup was, you know, it was quite a brave thing to do. Uh, the, you know, the enemies that he faced weren't the Britons. It was... Um, it was senators back in Rome. And so it was, a, it was quite a statement of confidence for him to go there. And certainly it burnished his reputation because the very first reputa- representation of Britannia in any art form, it's in a, a, a city in what's now Turkey. And it shows Claudius as a sort of, he's stripped to the waist. He's got a sort of six pack. He doesn't look anything like the dribbling, stammering Claudius of popular myth. And he is essentially uh, raping Britannia. And Britannia has, you know, she, he, he's torn off her, her robes and is pinning her to the ground and is about to have his way with her. And this absolutely was what Claudius was after. He, he wanted to portray himself as a muscle-bound sex god um, because it served absolutely to, um, to put into the shade any notion of him as, uh, as a cripple. How important a role did the wives and mothers of some of these figures play? Well, crucial. Uh, and this was a cause of, of great discomfort to um the roman historians who were men who were male and aristocratic and who therefore recorded in salacious detail all the doings and supposed doings of the various wives sisters daughters and the reason for this was that traditionally the romans had taken for granted that women should not have a role to play in public life they were not allowed to become senators or to command armies or anything like that. However, there was also a tradition inherited from the Republic that great women, women uh, with positions of authority in the great Republican families, were perfectly entitled to do what they could to promote the interests of their menfolk. And the person who does this more effectively than any other woman in Roman history is the wife of Augustus, Livia Drusilla, who is um, by adoption the granddaughter of a Roman politician who'd been a key influence on getting Italians the citizenship, so it was very popular with them. She was also by blood a Claudian, the most elite and arrogant and aristocratic of the traditional Republican dynasties. So she was as blue-blooded as they came. And she provided Augustus, whose own background was a little bit provincial, with a real touch of class. And she absolutely understood the role she had to play, which was that in public she had to be a frigid, veiled epitome of Roman virtue. The question was, what was she doing in the background? And it's clear that she was a formidable um, political operator, and that was why Augustus relied on her, trusted on her, which gave her incredible power. Um, There are dark suspicions, many of which I think are justified, that she used this power to do down those she was opposed to and to promote the interests particularly of her sons and ultimately it's Tiberius was her son ends up as the second emperor now she in a sense is the exception that proves the rule because no one ever accuses her of any sexual impropriety and she ends up a goddess almost all the other imperial women at some point get called get accused of being a prostitute of being an adulteress and this under Augustus and his heirs is, is a criminal offence. Adultery is a criminal offence. And it is repeatedly unleashed as a charge against the imperial princesses 
beginning with Augustus' own daughter, Julia, who is accused of prostituting herself in the forum in the most public way. But this is just the first of a whole slew of accusations which also come to embrace incest. Agrippina, for instance, is said to have slept with her son Nero. And these charges, the truth of them, almost impossible to know. But as I said right at the beginning, the, 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 the thing that is fascinating about these accusations and these stories is that they, they shed an absolutely revelatory light on what it is about Roman attitudes to women and to power that made the period of the Julio-Claudians such a remarkable drama. Because the combination of power and vulnerability in the household just makes it the most... Nobody, nobody in the, in, in the house of Caesar can ever relax for a moment. And that's especially true of the women. And so much of what we know about this period is due to some of the great writers of the first century. How important was, was this dynasty for the kind of arts and culture of Rome? Well, Augustus, um, I mean, to this age, a golden age is called the Augustan Age. Uh, he serves as the patron of Virgil, of Horace. Um, it's under Augustus that Ovid, the great love poet, writes, um, comes a cropper, uh, is, is in a sense a Samizdat figure because his, his, his fascination with sexual peccadilloes you know, this is an age where adultery is a sin and Ovid is endlessly going on about adultery. So he, he sails very close to the wind and ultimately ends up being exiled. And there's a sense in which that exiling of Ovid does spell the end for what had been the golden age of Roman literature and of free expression. And from that point on, it becomes ever more dangerous for Roman writers to exercise their traditional right to freedom of speech. People start being executed for offending the emperor. It becomes more and more dangerous, it becomes darker and darker. And the person who articulates, the historian who articulates this darkening of the political mood is one of the greatest historians of all time, the great, certainly the greatest Roman historian, Tacitus, who is not writing under the Julio-Claudians. He is writing after the regime that succeeds the Julio-Claudians. So Vespasian, sort of rough, peasant-like figure, ends up becoming emperor in the wake of, of Nero and a whole sort of quick succession of other emperors. His younger son, Domitian, is a brutally autocratic ruler, very effective, but very, very brutal. Tacitus essentially seems to have, have collaborated with him and then to have had a, a very bad conscience about this. And he writes about the Julio-Claudians in his greatest work, his last work, which has been called since the 16th century, The Annals. And it's really a meditation on the nature of the regime established by Augustus. Now, intriguingly, he, Tacitus does not begin with Augustus. Instead, he uses Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero as refractions of what Augustus had created. And his portrait, particularly of Tiberius, is an absolute masterpiece. It, it is, I think, incredibly unfair to Tiberius, but it is masterly nevertheless. And the sense you have throughout the work, and we, we, we don't have all of it. Unfortunately, the reign of Caligula is missing and half of Claudius is missing, but we have, we have the rest and much of, of Nero's. What you get there is an incredible sense of the darkening of Rome, the extinction of her freedoms. And in a sense, it's provided for people ever since the paradigm of an autocratic regime and what happens when 
an autocratic system is established on the ruins of what had previously been um, a free political system. And it is, I've had the huge luck of, when I wrote Persian Fire, I, I, I did it in a very close relationship with, with Herodotus. It's been a great privilege to write Dynasty and have Tastas with me so much, to have him so much part of my life, because he, he is a historian who bears endless rereading, endless um, meditation, uh, and you get a kind of intimacy with a great historian writing about the period he's written about that you get in no other way. Just one more question, Tom. If you could meet or, say, go for dinner with one of these five emperors, which would you choose? Well, I think all of them would be rather dangerous. Uh, this is on the assumption that they wouldn't try and poison me or anything. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think Nero, because as I was writing it, my worry was, am I going to be able to top that? Every so often I'd, I'd write about something that would be so shocking or appalling or grimly hilarious or awful. But I think, how can I possibly top that? I got to Nero and I, and I thought, yeah, this is fine. There's no way anyone can top Nero. And the whole time I was writing it, I'd think, oh, he's done that. Surely he can't top. Oh my God, he has topped it. He has. And I get up in the morning and think, I'm writing about Nero. And I have never enjoyed writing anything as much in my life. And I'd get to the evening and rather than just sort of feeling relaxed and, and, and happy that I'd done a full day's work, generally I just think, oh, I wish I wish I had enough energy to carry on writing. All I can look forward to is the next day. I've never really had that before. So I enjoyed writing about Nero more than anyone else I've written about. He is truly monstrous but he's also kind of brilliant as well and very charismatic very intelligent and I think would be an amazing dinner party companion provided that obviously things didn't go wrong that was Tom Holland Dynasty the rise and fall of the house of Caesar is out now in the UK published by Little Brown in the US, it is due to be published next month by Doubleday. And Tom has also written the cover feature for the October issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's issue, there are articles on the Battle of Agincourt, Alan Turing, the Battle of the Somme, and Interwar Europe, among other things. You can get hold of our October issue in all good newsagents and digitally. And once again for this month, we're continuing our service of providing audio versions of some of the articles. You can listen to these on our iPad and iPhone editions, and also online at historyextra.com forward slash October audio. And if you'd like to hear more from Tom Holland, well, he's one of the speakers appearing at our Malmesbury History Weekend event from the 15th to the 18th of October and there are a few tickets still available for his talk. You can get hold of those and find out more about this event and our companion weekend at York at historyweekend.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. Queen Elizabeth II this week became the longest reigning monarch in British history. On Wednesday the 9th of September, at around 5.30pm, the Queen surpassed the record held by her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, a ruling for 63 years and 7 months. To be precise, 23,226 days, 16 hours and 23 minutes. Elizabeth acceded to the throne on the 6th of February 1952 at the age of 25. Cheering crowds greeted the Queen in Edinburgh on Wednesday as she opened the New Borders Railway that runs between Tweedbank and Edinburgh. To read some surprising facts about the Queen and Kate Williams's analysis of her reign, and to view pictures of the Queen through the decades, visit historyextra.com. In other news, a larger version of Stonehenge has been discovered just one mile away from the famous monument. Using ground-penetrating radar on Salisbury Plain, Scientists found up to 90 large stones lying on their sides, some as long as 15 feet, which have been buried under 3 feet of earth for more than 4,000 years. Scientists from the University of Bradford believe the stones, the Durrington Walls, lined an area that was probably used for religious ceremonies or solstice rituals. Professor Vince Gaffney from the University of Bradford described the find as truly remarkable. Meanwhile, the remains of Jewish victims held in the skeleton collection of a Nazi anatomy professor have been interred in northeastern France. The bodies of 86 Jews, sent to the gas chambers in 1943, were brought to Strasbourg, which was then under Nazi occupation, where Professor August Hurt was assembling a ghoulish collection of corpses. The remains were discovered in July this year at a forensic medical institute in eastern France. According to the AFP news agency, the remains were interred on Sunday during a ceremony at a cemetery in Strasbourg. Thanks for that, Emma. 
Our next interview is with Amanda Foreman, a best-selling author, historian and broadcaster. Her latest project is The Ascent of Woman, a four-part history of women that is currently showing on BBC Two. Amanda was interviewed by our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, for an article in our September issue. And here, for the podcast, Charlotte put some further questions to Amanda about the series and the stories that inspired it. Tell us a little bit about the series um, and also the book to go with it. You know, what made you want to, to explore this topic? Well, back when I was writing my last book, A World on Fire, which was about the American Civil War, one of the things that absolutely infuriated me was the prevalence of male assumptions about the female experience. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. In 1864, Atlanta, which was in the South, was captured by the North, and it was the t- great turning point in the Civil War. And then all the Northern armies then marched across from Atlanta all the way to the sea, right across the South. They devastated a huge swathe, 60 mile wide, as they as they marched through. And every single history book says it's just marvellous, because although Northern soldiers destroyed property, they didn't assault women. It was a, you know, a, a clean march to the sea. And that is so utterly ridiculous and wrong. It drives me crazy. And the, the reason why historians have said that is because there are no records of any mass rapes or gang rapes committed by these marauding soldiers. But if you, if you spent one second thinking about why there are no statistics, you would realize it's because these women who were assaulted, white Southern and black Southern women who were literally sitting targets for these, for these soldiers, was because they had no one to report their rape and assault to. What were they going to do? Get on a horse and gallop off after the Northern Army and say, I want to speak to the person in charge to complain about my rape. I mean, it boggles the mind. And I read hundreds of diaries of, of, of Southern women in the war who described the terrible things that happened to them. Only you know, the men, male historians, just weren't interested in reading the diaries of women and therefore didn't, you know, didn't take the female experience into account when they wrote about how marvellous it was that women largely escaped the horrors of war. And I thought, OK, this is it. That inspired you then to, to go on and, and do the series? Yes, it did. Uh, and I am writing the book, but it, the book isn't finished. It will come out next year. OK. Um, I mean, has history always been male-dominated? Has history always been male-dominated? There have been women historians in the past, including very important and famous ones that existed back in the classical era, but their books haven't come down to us. They haven't survived. Uh, and by the beginning of the Middle Ages, when writing is enforced as a male preserve, then you see the removal of women's voice from everywhere, and that includes history. So it it feels like it's become increasingly male-dominated. And of course, by the time you get to the 18th, 19th century, where education is a male privilege, then yes, you have very, very few women's voices. There's always one or two, but there are very few women's voices because they're not allowed to be there. Has that been the case over the century? I mean, your series that covers a vast amount of time. How have views of women changed over that time? Well, one of the things that we set out to do in in The Ascent of Woman was to define the the female experience into its, its essential parts. And so episode one looks at the origins of things. What are the origins of patriarchy? What are the origins of the idea 
that women are the inferior sex? Who decided that women should be silent? Who came up with that idea that speech is a male privilege and, and that you know women should, as Sophocles said in, uh, in his play Ajax, silence is a woman's garment? Who came up with that idea? And the reason that's incredibly important to investigate is that you discover incredible pieces of information that change absolutely everything the way we perceive ourselves. And the most, I think, important fact that's come out of The Ascent of Woman is that a woman invented literature. Her name was Enhedwana. She was the high priestess of Sumer in 2350 BC. She'd been put in that position by her father, Sargon the Great, who was the first empire in the world. And she was the first person to realize that writing could be more than just a means of communicating facts. It could also be a means of self-expression. She's the first person to use the word I. I am. I am an Hedwana in her writing. She's the first known author in the world. So when do we first see these divisions in, in gender? I mean, obviously, an Hedwana was quite a character. You know, she sounds apart from the norm, really. How were women in, in her time normally treated? We tend to think of women's history as, as being a tale of woe until the 20th century, when suddenly you get the pill and things seem to get a bit better. And that isn't the case. In fact, our story is about really quite wild swings between freedom and oppression, liberation and suppression. This isn't just my opinion, it's, it's now received uh, academic opinion that the, the single greatest influence on the position of women was the introduction of agriculture and the invention of the plough. Agriculture seems to have completely changed how human beings related to each other. Before then, society was pretty egalitarian, and we see that in the early settled communities, as in Chatelhuyuk and in Turkey, which was, which was founded in 7,500 BC. But as communities begin to acquire surplus and more and more people are living together in greater numbers and women, because of the dietary changes that come in with agriculture, are having more and more children and the question of inheritance and division of property and ownership comes into play, then suddenly their status drops and their sexuality, the control of their fertility becomes the single most important question uh, in, the, in the entire hierarchy of power. Many of the women that you look at in the series are wealthy women, perhaps in power. Um, but you also look at ordinary women who've also made huge changes. Is there anyone in particular that, that stood out for you? Oh, yes. One of the important messages of The Ascent of Woman is that, number one, your biology is not your destiny. And number two, your class isn't your destiny either. And that we look at a lot of women who despite having been born into incredibly challenging and difficult circumstances, managed to subvert the institutions around them into their own favour. Whether it's, for example, Roxolana, who was kidnapped at the age of 11 from the Ukraine and sold into sex slavery to, into the Ottoman Empire and became one of the Sultan Suleiman's many, many, many concubines in his harem. But through sheer force of will and determination and intelligence, she rose through the ranks and to become not just the number one concubine, but to insist that the sultan married her, which was breaking with two centuries of tradition. 
And and once she was ensconced into the Sultan's life and palace, she completely reordered the domestic and sexual and political power structure of the time. One thing that, that struck me from from the series and also from the feature um, that you did for the magazine um, is, is some most of these women are, are quite little known to, to lots of people. I mean, I'd, I'd heard of some some of them, some of them they've done such remarkable things. Why has their contribution to history been hidden as as such? I just don't think that we can ever underestimate the female discount that goes on in life in general. I mean, I'll give you an example. In my experience, when mothers talk about their children to healthcare professionals, there's there's the mother discount. We're automatically, our words just have half the force. But when a father speaks about his child to a healthcare professional, everybody listens to him. And the same goes at school. You pick up the school and you call the, the head teacher with a concern or a complaint. Oh, it's just one of those worried mothers. You know, the father does it and everyone kind of sits up. Oh, well, of course, you know. And you can translate that to every single area of life, including history. So the fact that, you know, N. Hedwana invented literature, the fact that Lady Murasaki Shikibu in the 11th century in Japan, wrote the world's first novel, The Tale of Genji. These absolutely foundational pillars of human society are discounted because they were done by women. When was uh, sort of discounting uh, today? Um, when would you think would have been the, the best and worst time to have been a woman? Well, I, I've always had a soft spot for the 18th century in Britain. There was a kind of fluidity that was taking place from the 1760s onwards. And you see that in the way people were able to transcend sex, gender, class, even even religious boundaries in ways that hadn't existed before. And and that's what makes 18th century society, I think, so interesting and exciting is, is that outsiders are able to come in and, and have a genuine impact around them on the on the cultural and literary landscape. And and I suppose that's why one of my favourite characters is Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire. I, just, I think she's a real archetype of the kind of social pioneer who was able to transcend any roles that were, that were actually handed to her or expected of her. One of the characters uh, who particularly struck me was, was Empress Wu, uh, who was China's only female emperor, and sort of remains so. Um, can you tell us a little bit about her? So Empress Wu was married to Emperor Gaozong in the 7th century. She was part of the Tang dynasty. And what you have to remember is that the there was already a tradition of strong female empresses who uh, could manipulate power behind the scenes in their favour and in the favour of their relatives. But she took that a step further. And after her husband died, she claimed the throne for herself in her own right. And she became the only ruling empress as what we would call, I suppose, a female emperor. And the way Chinese historians have treated her is really quite disgusting. She is accused of committing every crime under the sun, from infanticide to mass murder, poisoning, torture, you name it. Whereas the reforms that she enacted are glossed over. So Empress Wu invented the civil service, all modern civil services, with the idea of a meritocracy based on competitive examination came from the Chinese civil service and that Chinese civil service was created by her. And she was the one that said, hang on a second, this is just 
my government is full of layabouts, lackeys and flunkies. I need real workers. And so she insisted that there, there would be a fair examination that everybody had to study for and the, and the winners, the best winners would get picked. And did, did things stay like that even after her reign? Well, after her reign, they kept her reforms, but she was not just ignored. They tried to obliterate her reputation. So this, the, the custom in China is that each emperor would have a stele, a a memorial stone on which his achievements would be written and recorded. She has a stele that is blank, completely blank. So they didn't dare tear it down, but they they did everything else but to obliterate who she was and what she had done. And, and did the status of women change as well after after her death? Yes, it did. Empress Wu was not a queen bee. Now, we talk about the queen bee syndrome, where there's one woman in power and she does everything she can to make sure that there are no other women around her who can rival her or have any kind of challenge. Wu was not like that. She actually chose as her prime minister another woman called Shang Guan Wanna, who was a, was a fabulously interesting and clever and scholarly and accomplished woman in her own right. And she also groomed numerous female relatives to try and hopefully install them into top jobs. But after Empress Wu died, there was a backlash against women in power, not helped by the fact that China went into tremendous turmoil, had internal conflicts. It was also being beset by and besieged by raids from nomadic tribes in the north and a kind of growing conservatism took over in the country, a social conservatism helped by neo-Confucianism. And that that led to an attempt to control women, put them back into their box, as it were. Do you think that um, the role of women, you know, their status, is it reflected in sort of artistic representations of, of women through history? Very much so. You can definitely see that in Chinese history, that Tang art is full of women. They're, they're portrayed, they're beautiful, they're voluptuous, they beauty is is one of the defining characteristics both of Tang art and of the Tang women presented. And it's sort of instructive that with the closing down of opportunities for women to be in the public space, i.e. not cloistered behind the walls of the house, you see their invisibility. They're no longer able to participate. They can't write. They're denied access to poetry, to the arts, and they appear less in the arts. There's a very famous scroll called the Qingming Scroll, which was commissioned during the Song Dynasty. And it's, it purports to show the ideal Chinese world. And there's something like over 800 figures in this beautiful depiction of perfectly harmonious and peaceful Chinese village. And a handful of these figures are women. That's it. Just a handful. The series looks like it took you all over the place, filming-wise. What was a highlight for you from, from filming? Great highlights were being able to go to places that showed just how different life could be and was for women and that, that our history isn't a monolith. So when we, we flew to Siberia, to the Altai Republic, in order to film The Ice Maiden, which is a two-and-a-half-thousand-year mummy of a young girl who was a warrior in her own time among the Pazarik tribe and clearly a woman of very high status. And we can tell this from her burial. And she was perfectly preserved in the ice with her silk shift and her 
her felt boots and this incredible meter-high conical hat that she wore, which was indicated her status. And she had weapons buried with her. And what that demonstrates to us and what that reminds us is that in other societies, at the same time as we see women, for example, in ancient Greece, just literally being disappeared from the public records, other societies still felt that men and women had a kind of joint role to play and they could participate in hunting, defending their camps in the, in the political and religious life of their, of, their, of their societies as well. How have women participated in, in change through, through history? Well, one of the really interesting things that we cover in episode four is, is what happens in revolutions. From the 18th century onwards, what you see is a world in turmoil where political and social revolutions are happening one after the other. And for women, they, they get done over every single time. It's the most extraordinary thing, starting with the French Revolution. These revolutions depend on the participation of women in order to turn the tide. But when men are leading these revolutions, what they're intent on doing is substituting one hierarchy for another. And once they achieve that, they just tell women to go back into their old way of life. And sometimes it's even a worse way of life. And it's only when women are leading their own revolutions, whether it's the knowledge revolution of the 19th century, which enabled them to get an education, or the sexual revolution of the 20th century, when that happens, it isn't about replacing hierarchies, it's about inclusion. And then these are much more sustained and more successful revolutions. That was Amanda Foreman speaking to Charlotte Archman. The Ascent of Woman is currently showing each Wednesday on BBC Two and previous episodes are available on the BBC iPlayer. Charlotte and Amanda's article appeared in our September issue, which is no longer in the shops but can be purchased as a back issue in print and in some digital formats. Just before we go, we're currently running a survey to find out what you think about the podcast and whether there are any aspects we could improve. We'd very much appreciate your feedback, so if you have a couple of minutes to spare, please visit historyextra.com forward slash pod survey to share your thoughts. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Jacobite Rebellion and the Battle of the Somme. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.